G'day leaders. One of our listeners reached out to us uh, to get us to work with his team. And when I spoke to Prince Siva, what a fantastic name, the founder and managing director of Komodo Design and Renovation, I asked him about his background and how he came to be the leader of a construction company in Brisbane. And his story captivated me. So I begged him uh, to tell it on our podcast. Occasionally you'll meet someone with a level of integrity that's rarely seen in this world. And Prince um, has a level of integrity that uh, I've rarely seen. Prince uh, was working as a salesman for another construction company when he was when he realised that the company he represented was doing the wrong thing by its customers. They were about to be completely ripped off so that the owner could flee the country with all their money. Now, Prince, rather than walking away from the situation, decided to do something about it so that the clients didn't suffer. And this was the birth of a now very successful construction company in Brisbane called Komoda. You'll hear how, as a child, he escaped a civil war where the army tried to burn down a house with him in it, and how subsequently he developed an amazing attitude of pushing through no matter what the obstacle. Quite an extraordinary leader, and I trust you'll enjoy hearing his story as much as we did. Cheers. Why did it count backwards? I know that we're now recording. <laughs> what? Hello, Captain. Oh, what do I Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. What are we going to talk about? I don't know. So, leadership, life and everything else. Yeah. And we're live. No, we're recording. <laughs> and today we've got a special guest. I'm very excited for this podcast. Prince, welcome to the podcast and thank you for coming on. No, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, now, we, we met uh, when you reached out after listening to our podcast and, and uh, we were talk, you, you wanted to talk about uh, what we do and that sort of stuff. And then in our introduction, you started to tell me things about you and you have an amazing story. So I begged you to come on our podcast and you accepted. So thank you very much. <laughs> so um, people heard in our introduction um, what your background is and... and Komodo uh, designs but what I'd like to ask you to do is to give us your story to give uh, a background to you because when I was listening to your story I was absolutely captivated and I think there's a lot of lessons in your story that our listeners could learn from so to put you on the spot if you could take us back to your childhood and then take us to how you got from where you were as a child to now running your own construction company I'd love to hear that story. I don't know. How much time do we have? We've got as much time <laughs> as we right. need. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's been a colourful journey, to mm -hmm. say the least. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of things have come my way um, by chance. Mm -hmm. uh, some have been positive and others have been negative. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just about how I've kind of kind of worked with what we've what what I've had to had at hand mm -hmm. um and I don't believe I had any sort of philosophical background at any point in how I was dealing with it. I think I was just dealing with things as they came mm -hmm. uh and as I read a little bit more now and um do a little bit more study I think there's it, it sits in the the stoic 
realm of, Stoic. of, of, yeah. of yeah. things. Yeah. Um, so where, can you take us back to your childhood? Of course. So where, yeah. where you took me to? Sure, back. sure. Um, so I was born in Sri Lanka yeah. um, in the 80s during the civil war that was happening from about 1982, 1983 is mm-hmm. when, when it started. And um, the we were, we, we were born in a, I was born in a small small village uh, on the east side of Sri Lanka and we had a quite a comfortable life um, growing up um, we had some our family had some rice fields that we owned and uh, my dad was an engineer in, in the area and you know we had a normal life and a it, there was it was in the midst of the civil war but it hadn't peaked at the time and uh, there was one occasion that stood out on the 27th of October, 1987. Uh, it's a vivid memory for me because it's, it, it, I actually can recall every single detail of that date, uh, of the day, uh, from sight, smell, sound, everything. Um, and it, it, there was a bomb that went off. Um, that unfortunately killed, I think, about 20 soldiers who were going on a march. Um, and the army decided that they needed to go and find out who did this. And the way they were going to do that was they were going to go house to house. And so basically, where were you when the bomb went up? I was at my neighbor's house at 8.30 in the morning, and I can clearly hear them playing some sort of religious music at the time and my brother and I were there and I remember jumping across the moment it's sort of like a sonic boom kind of Mm. feeling and we hadn't experienced that before and we knew it was bad how old were you six six yeah was exactly six and we ran across and went in and I think we didn't understand the magnitude of what had happened but we knew it was something that was important and later on we found out that that was the biggest event to happen in that area. The army went door to door and before they got to the house that we were living, my grandma's house, uh, basically my grandma huddled us all into one room and uh, put some bars across the door and, you know, like she was quite a uh, intelligent person. She's uh, what she was. And um, she put us under the beds, straight in, all right, kids, under the bed, you know, that's where you're going to go. And we didn't know how long we were going to be there. So we were a few, few, few hours or whatever. It so happened that we were there in that, under that bed for about 10 hours, I would say. Right. Wow. Wow. And um, there was a moment we could hear the army going through the house. You could hear the boots and all banging on the doors. You could hear them rifling through the house. And you knew that it's just... It's moments before they're going to come through. And, uh, I don't know, you know, it's just vivid memories for me. It's like things like, oh, you know, I need to pee. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah. and, and, and there was like a little, like a two liter can of anchor milk, that powdered milk. And there was like, okay, go, go in here. And, you know, I can, I, again, I can clearly, I can see it color vision. I can see it. And, um, and there was moments where we were like, oh my God, there's a second door to this bedroom and the key is always kept on the outside and they're just going to, they're going to come through that. And so this, this anticipation of when is it, not, not if it's going to happen, but when is it going mm. to happen? Uh, and there was a break in silence at, at a particular point and, uh, there was quiet and 
think we ventured out. Um, and the, the, I think as a six-year-old, these are, these are scary things. And I remember walking out into this dining room and there's a window there. And on from that window, you could see this little side street. And we, I remember looking straight at it. I could see a tank and the tank was just turning its barrel, the, the gun barrel, and it was just doing that turn towards your house. And I was just like, oh my God, I, I can literally see it. And you know, what's, I, I could just see it slowly d- d- doing this turn. And we were ducking and, and hiding under the table and then going back in. And there was, I probably would have been about four o'clock in the afternoon, I'd say. I, I can't quite remember, but there was a, specific moment where we knew it, it, it had died down. They didn't come through the room. And we went out and I could see the TV was like smashed. The, the, uh, in the eighties, you guys may remember the VCR yeah. was a precious item, yeah. precious, precious mm-hmm. item. As a kid, you get told, don't put your fingers in, you know, yeah. don't, don't put things in there. Like it's just one of those things. And I, it was revered. Uh, and, a memory that will last, I think, for the rest of my life will be seeing that VCR on the ground with a boot mark, like stomped through it. And you could see these little black plastic wheels that pulled the tape or whatever. Yeah. And it was all around the floor. And um, I could just, I, I said to my grandma, oh, my God, the, v- the VCR is broken. It, it, they've done that was the biggest yeah. pr- thing, I, I guess, for me, that was sim. sim- that was the symbol of everything right yeah. or everything good. And uh, seeing it on the floor was kind of like a jarring um, thing of what was uh, happening. And uh, I remember my grandma saying, don't worry, Chuckle Mama will fix it. My uh, mum's brother, uncle, living about uh, about 10 doors away. And uh, we, we didn't realise at the time they had he had passed away. They had killed him. Oh. on that day oh, no. and so it was quite shocking um, so where was your grandmother when all of this was happening she was i was in my grandma's house but so was she stopping them coming into your room no or? we we just had barricaded one room yeah and it had big timber bars across it these old big i don't know teak bars maybe yeah but whatever it was they just probably went i oh, can't be bothered yeah. Right. yeah we've tried and we can't be so bothered. she was in the room with you she was every single person was in the room so right. my a couple of my aunts, my brother, myself, um, there would have been about five or six people, whoever was in the house at the time yeah. was, was in wow. that one room. Wow. And uh, we actually went out and saw that they had taken a little coffee table and taken all these brooms and sticks and stuff like that and created like a little teepee out of it and set it on fire. Oh. But it didn't catch on. You could see it had started to catch fire, yeah. but it hadn't. So they were going to try and burn. They were just going to burn the house down. Wow! Because it would have been the easy thing just go burn it, move on to the next one. Yeah. Wow. So it was. I guess that was a life changing event for me, Mm. Uh, and we became instant refugees in Mm. our own country. Mm. So we, as Tamil speakers, um, predominantly in the north and east of Sri Lanka. the majority um, Sinhalese, um, great people, just had just happened to have a conflict uh, at the time, and we were displaced, I guess, from that point on. Um, and so we just became refugees in Colombo, um, and we were 
helped out by friends and family and had to sort of find our feet and uh, yeah it was a it was a bit of a story after that yeah wow. so wow. when you were telling us before we started recording that um you were you considered yourself wealthy well off never having to worry about next meal next day or anything in your village mm. and then being thrown into now being on the other side the refugee yeah mm. then that would have even as a six-year-old um i can imagine that would have been confusing as well yeah it was it was it was very confusing because I think our concept of what a refugee is can be skewed. We think a refugee is a person in another country, a foreign country. Yes. And the concept of being a refugee within your own country is is actually worse mm. for a person to conceptualize mm. or for a child to actually quite like understand. Yeah. Um, and I think that would have been one of the hardest things for me, being in an area where you go, well, I, I don't have the the comforts of home, or uh, you know, I'm living now in someone's spare room because through the kindness that they're offering us, yeah. And uh, and I think, yeah, that that was quite a shock to to the system. Mm. Uh, if I look back at the way that it affected different people in the family, I think it affected everybody. Different people reacted to those events or events of that day. In a very unique way, mm. Mm. And so you're, you're one of three. You've got an older brother and a younger sister. That's correct. I've yeah. got an older brother who's uh, three years old, uh, four years old, three years older than me. Sorry, mm -hmm. and my sis youngest sister who is three years younger than me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it would have left a different mark on the three of you because of your age. It did, and uh, I think my brother and I were able to understand the events more. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, a, a really unique thing that happened was that my memory, I don't have a memory before that day in October 87. Wow. Like, I, I cannot tell you a, a single event. Mm. Yeah. But I can tell you the events of that day in absolute detail. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, um, Whereas my brother, who would have been was a bit older, has a bit more understanding, and I think it didn't affect him as much. I, I shouldn't say that, but it might have affected him differently. Yeah. And my sister was probably too young to understand what was mm. happening, mm. and she, she would have only realised. Yeah. Yeah. She was okay. only three, and she would have only realised the effects of that quite later in her life. Yeah. So from that that event your your parents took you out of Sri Lanka and where did you go to then so we didn't go out of Sri Lanka uh, as a family okay. um, it was a time where you know my dad had to look for a new job and uh, different options um, and uh, he uh, it was it was quite again it's I guess luck or fate uh, um, my dad got offered a job in Papua New Guinea, um, just quite sheer luck, absolutely sheer luck for them to, you know, want a person from the other side of the world to come in and work as an engineer in uh, on projects. And um, it changed our life. Um, it, you know, the we, we, we hadn't, we didn't, we thought that that was our fate, like that was 
we now had to rebuild from a, a sort of a, a very negative sort of position um, to then have uh, this opportunity for my dad come up um, it kind of helped us to change a, a few things and so he got a job and they offered full schooling for the kids and a house and all of those things and so he took it of course mm. and um, it, we went to Papua New Guinea for a couple of years and then um, uh, after a few years um, the area we were living in was quite remote in Papua New Guinea and um, uh, my parents had the wisdom to think that it would be best for us to retain some of our Sri Lankan culture uh, and language and all of those things. And so uh, they sent us to live with my grandma in Colombo uh, uh, in sort of the early 90s. Mm. Yeah. So what was that like, going back to Sri Lanka after what you went through as, as a six-year-old? I, again, I think at the time I didn't really put too much thought to it. Okay. Um, I was probably not able to understand all of those complexities. But we always lived in constant fear. Mm. So fear wasn't something that came and went you live in a state of fear and that's quite different mm. um, and so when you're in that state you adapt to that state mm. you either shy away and crumble or you will create uh, avenues and um, I suppose different coping mechanisms of how to manage that and you will somewhat try to assimilate as close as you can so that you're not going to stick out. I think that's one of the times where I could say, well, my ability to read the room and change and adapt to the situation was forged in those few years that I went back to Sri Lanka because we were at the height of the war at that time, mid-90s, there were bombs going off left, right and centre. Like, it was just horrific. And um, there was checkpoints, there was police blockades, they would do house-to-house checks, uh, people would disappear. Uh, it, was a, it was a time where you would go, wow, this is, this is quite a, a, a situation. And being the minority meant that we couldn't speak up for ourselves, we couldn't defend ourselves as well as a native um, Sinhalese speaker could at the, in, in, in Colombo, and that put us at a disadvantage. So we had to adapt. Mm. Do you think um, uh, moving also from, so from your home initially and then being made a refugee uh, to then moving to PNG and back again as a child, did you kind of reinvent yourself every time? So you had that opportunity, even though it's massive change, um, you had that that chance to kind of try out someone, be someone else, or, yeah. or kind of try on something new. Yeah. Did you? It was. It, it is. It is good. Great question. Because as you were asking it, I was thinking, oh gosh, what did I do? And it, it's it, it simple thing would be like when I was living in PNG. Uh, I don't know if you guys 
know that the whole of PNG is a Queensland. Right. Okay. <laughs> like everyone everyone's PNG wearing white and gold. Is a, is a, is a yeah. Queensland supporter. <laughs> no one's a blues supporter. Yeah. And uh, it's funny. Like, I I guess I had no context for it when I had just moved in. But I was like, I was also a Queensland Qu- <laughs> supporter. I had never even watched an NRL game. <laughs> at the time. And you just adapt, right? You just yeah. go, well, that's just what I am now. And, and I'm, it was even though you know many many years later before i lived in queensland i was i had been a queensland supporter for you know 30 something wow. years now there you go. so were you considered exotic <laughs> when you went back to sri lanka that you'd lived you know you worldly and and you'd then gone back or i didn't really um one of the good things that my parents did which again we i in hindsight now i would i am very appreciative of them was they made the decision that schooling in PNG at the time wasn't ideal and they were willing to sacrifice living with their kids for the sake of sending them back to a country that they knew that someone else was also there to look after but what they did they invested every dollar they had to put us in the best school in Sri Lanka Hmm. at the time wow so if I think God would I do that for my kids that's a hard one right now Mm -hmm. and I think wow so it's a tough one. Yeah. They, they. I've seen what my dad was making at the time, and it wasn't huge. And I, they put me in the in my brother and myself and my sister. They put us in the best school. The president's daughter at the time was my classmate in sitting next to me. Hmm. And so to go from this village child who was, you know, kind of a refugee to be able to come back to the same country but to be placed in an elevated position of that nature even though we didn't fit in even though we weren't the 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 right people for that school we had to make it work because mm. that's just what we had to do and we i think we took the best of that opportunity and you know amazing that my parents had that foresight to be able to invest in their children's education like that. So how how did you find yourself in Australia? How did you come here? To say that I didn't use the best of my schooling ability or or, or opportunity is is probably on on the right track. Uh, You know, my brother did exceptionally well um, and went on to study medicine um, and he's a fantastic doctor right now in in America and whereas myself I think I may have spent a lot of time or energy in in discovering just talents within myself that were atypical to structured education okay (laughs) yeah putting it yeah um and in that pursuit you are going to end up with outcomes that aren't going to be typical. So in exams and results, I didn't score as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I remember saying to you, I uh, we have O-levels and A-levels there, you know, uh, the British system. And uh, I did quite well in the O-levels. And when it came to the A-levels, I was playing 
all sorts of sport and all different things and I was um, uh, I just had different interests and uh, different learning styles I don't think it was suited the typical style wasn't suited at the time and um, I remember going to see our results at the principal's office that's how we had to go and find our results and I went with a couple of my friends and I remember reading the the results out and uh, it's one <laughs> I got an E and an N and a D I, to this day I don't even know what the hell an N is <laughs> it's, I think it must be like not classified as anything I don't even know anyway you, you know from an a from a scale of a to whatever it, it's pretty bad and I remember this friend of mine said to me oh my god prince you've reached the end <laughs> he said there is nothing like you're finished this is the end for you and I just remember thinking of it at the time going screw you yeah that's what you think and all my friends you know they had done all their applications to universities and all of that sort of stuff and I'd done mine um, hoping to go to like UK or wherever and I just knew with those results I wasn't going anywhere and um, so I went back and the internet was quite new at the time but we had you know again uh, again we my parents again were happy to invest in technology and things so we had the internet in 1996 and um, I decided that I will email every single university that I can find on the internet in any country I can find. And I just started emailing them saying, I know. It started with something like, I realize that I do not meet your criteria for <laughs> admission. However, <laughs> here are some, you know, uh, facts that I would like to present about myself. And here are, you know, five different reasons why I think you should consider me, blah, 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 blah. And I just applied and applied and applied and applied and applied. I just kept writing emails nonstop because I was like, this doesn't cost me anything. I think I was in a room for like four or five days straight. I just literally applied. And um, the University of New South Wales actually sent me a reply and said, uh, yes, you are correct. You don't meet any of our criteria. However, if you're willing to do two units that we offer as a, like a bridging program, and if you pass those, we will get you a full entry into this course. And it was architecture, actually, well, funnily enough. Yeah. I applied for anything. I didn't care what it was. Um, and I guess then the next hurdle was how was I going to fund this? Mm. <laughs> um, so then I asked my uncle in Norway. He was working in Norway. I said, hey, they just want a bank statement saying you're going to pay for me. I don't actually need you to pay for me. Just give me a bank statement and a letter saying you're paying for me. That's all I want. And so I just chucked it in, put the offer letter together, threw it in. I was like, at the time, it was like late 96, oh, 1997. It's really hard to get visas, right? Especially out of a war-torn country. Just threw it in, 
And I don't know what happened. Somehow they were like, sure, here's your student visa. Wow. Yeah. And good on you. You give me goosebumps. Right before my, <laughs> I think I. That was a great story, uh, didn't I? Just before my 18th birthday, I turned up in Sydney, and I was just like, okay, well, I guess I will figure it out from here. So yeah. Wow. The tenacity. I know. I know. I love that. Just you won't take no for an answer. Yeah. I couldn't. I had no choice. So you came to Australia. You went to university, and I want to know the path from there to having your own construction company. Gosh, um, I think it's like it. I I I didn't. Again, I think I, I did. More time was spent. Let me rephrase this. So. When I got to Sydney, I was like, you know what? I need to be as Australian as possible, as quick as possible, if I'm going to succeed. So I would get on the bus and just ride to random places, right? And I would take the ferry, go to Manly, I would go to Chatswood, I would go to all different places. And I would just take notes of different things and all, you know, all everything around me. And I'd watch a lot of like 80s TV shows. Oh, I feel so sorry for you. I know no. what our shows were like back I in know, the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> right? But then I, if I didn't have context, I wouldn't be able to have conversation. Yeah. So I had to, I went and I fully became a student of assimilation. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, what do I need to do to be successful in the way that suits me? Yeah. Not by the standards of getting good grades and a job and, you know, going through the ranks. I couldn't see myself do that. Mm. So I just did it the way that I thought works for me. And I needed a job. And I thought, they're not going to hire, like, a foreign student that's, like, the least pecking order, at least in the pecking order. So I just went, I was telling Guy this story. I would, um, I'd turn up to jobs, right? Uh, I'd, I'd put in for interviews and whatever, and I'd go there and I'd go, and I knew that it would clearly say, no, like we're not going to, we only want residents and uh, citizens. And I thought, you know what? But if I could make them believe that I wasn't a student or wasn't a foreign person, then they wouldn't even ask the question. So they would bypass that anyway because they'd feel silly, right? So I'd say things like, oh, you know, when I was in like, Oh, you know, how school is these days or, you know, it's just, you know, the things that you get out of school are very different to what, what we learn in life. And I just throw in little, little sound bites in the interview. <laughs> and to the point where the person interviewing would have been crazy to be like, are you a foreign student? <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how I got my first few jobs. And it just kind of goes from there. And, um, it coming, uh, so I worked in, in, in a couple of different industries, um, while studying, um, and even studying, I did, I did the longest route to a degree possible. I did. So you did architecture was your I didn't. degree. Ah, okay. I went, so I had an enrollment into architecture and, uh, and then I, I think it's one of those things, you know, uh, 
foreign students get this this push that you know you have to study the things that suit a pathway to residency and that's the most suitable so i i was like okay fine and i was i, I enrolled in computer science and i was like i think i went to a computer lab one day and I was like oh my god this is so not me <laughs> <laughs> and so I think I did the first year of it and I got through that and I actually changed to a business and marketing degree and uh and then halfway through I was like wow there is like I think I want to do psychology and I changed to a psych degree. And I think I was just going through this process of of discovering what my niche was. But I think formalized education just wasn't it. I think it was this student of life type situation. Mm. And I think I'm really thankful for being for the 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 variety of degree uh, choices that I had and, and the courses that I did within it. You know, I did, I did things like logic and, uh, cultural studies and it was great. Like I loved those and, uh, ethics and all of those things were fantastic, but they never were set on one particular degree task. And so, um, I took six years and I could, just as I was about to finish, um, my grandma got sick in Sri Lanka and it was a hard choice, but I decided to leave and go back and care for her. So I did that for a year before she passed away. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And then it sort of changed where I was going and then I had to reset again mm. and go again. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I could listen to your stories. <laughs> so after losing your grandmother, the, the lady that barred the door, that potentially saved your lives, so you came back to Australia after that? Or? Yeah. Um, I, I worked in Sri Lanka um, for a year and a half uh, after I went there. And uh, I think that was one of the best couple of years, uh, like times, um, I worked for a travel company and they would send me around the world to different travel shows. I went everywhere uh, and I would go to exhibitions and I would have to talk about Sri Lanka as a travel destination. Isn't it funny how I am here going, yeah. come to Sri Lanka, it's wonderful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, and, and Sri Lanka is wonderful. I don't, I don't want anyone to think otherwise. Mm. Uh, I love Sri Lanka as a country. I love Sri Lankans as people. Um, it's unfortunate that we've had conflict in the past, uh, but I would stand up today and shout about the, you know, the, the, the positives of Sri Lanka as a country, as a people, and as a nation. Uh, and I was quite happy to do that. And uh, I went around at all different, you know, locations to these travel shows. And I was uh, actually sales manager uh, for a very sort of a startup brand, which was Sri Lanka.com. And um, they were like, great, you've got some foreign experience. And, you know, it's it was owned by... Um, someone I knew and they said, there you go, you got a job, go, 
make it work. So your marketing degree pathway had come in handy? Everything. I, you know, I would have to make, I would make appointments with the tourism minister and be like, hey, would you like to meet? You know, and they were like, what do you mean? Like, you're some 20 year old person trying to meet with me? Like, I was like, because I didn't know any different. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that there was this whole hierarchy and I didn't know these barriers. So I just went, hey, this is what I do. How about we meet for lunch? And they'd be like, sure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that worked really well. I, I learned a lot and I learned to manage people. Uh, they were really genuinely good people working for this company. And my le- I didn't have a leadership style. I had no leadership uh, uh, well, they might disagree now if they if you go and talk to them. But at the time, I didn't know what I was doing, and I was leading the way I would have liked to be led myself. Yeah, and it was counter to what was culturally the norm. This hierarchy system, this whole calling people sir, and I was like, please don't call me sir, and uh, all these different levels. Uh, and uh, we made it very open and, you know, and it was a great culture that we brought through and it sh- showed through in the way that the employees interacted with clients and so on. And uh, it was a startup, I guess, back mm. in the day, you know, mm. uh, early 2000s. And um, and uh, it was not until I met my wife and we decided that, oh, I, I met my wife earlier, but uh, my wife was very patient while I said to her, hey, I'm not moving to America for you. I met her and uh, she was studying in America at the time. I said, I'm not moving to America for you. You've got to move to Australia. And these are all the wonderful things about Australia. And she said, yeah, yeah, I'll make it work. And so she changed her degree and got a master's program and enrolled and came to Australia. And I went, you know what? I'm actually going to stay in Sri Lanka for another year and a half or so. Oh, no. So you'd send her to Australia and you weren't going to be there? No. And that's what happened. And she was very patient. And I said, look, once I get this company in some state that I can leave, I feel the responsibility for it. So, yeah, I did that for a couple of uh, year and a half, two years, roughly. And then we decided to move to Brisbane. Uh, I grew I, I studied in Sydney, as I said, but we decided we wanted a neutral location that neither of us had any kind of advantage in no. and we knew that if we placed ourselves in a neutral location we would have to rely on each other we would have to be there for each other and uh, I think that was the one of the best decisions I ever made uh, leaving the safety and the friends groups that I had in Sydney yeah. uh, to come out here and sort of forge a, a path that we had to do it together, and I think that was fantastic. Did you convert your wife to be a Bronco supporter? She tries. <laughs> <laughs> she tries to be interested, uh, but uh, my kids are. <laughs> yeah. So you got into a company here in Brisbane, a construction company? Yeah, that's how it actually went. That's how I got into construction. So. Yeah. I, I'm coming from this travel background. I've got no no understanding of construction whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I get a job uh, 
from with some friends of friends and and they kind of put me through and there was like a connection to the people that that own this company in Toowoomba of all places and they said you know we're gonna change the world in terms of how building and construction is being done and uh, so I started working for them and it uh, it was good at the start I think the travel was hard but uh, but it um, it quickly wasn't I knew it wasn't what I what I wanted but you know someone I, I, I respect a lot said once to me that to learn anything you either have to have a lot of time or a lot of money or you have to use other people's time or other people's money and when I look back at that I think the fact that they I learned a lot of things about how not to do things yeah and uh, many times you know we were always thinking about how to do things well we're so positively orientated in our thinking that we neglect to understand the power of studying failure mm. uh, and I think by chance I'm a student of failure <laughs> That's great. Um, so that put me in I left that job and moved to another construction job in Brisbane that was really well systemized company i think systems is what i learned from those guys they were on task you know they were reading all the right books and they had emit and this and that and everything was systemized and they had all of the stuff lined up except ethics (laughs) (laughs) and i learned everything about everything else and then i went this doesn't sit right. Yeah. And it, it was proven, right, in the sense that in the end, uh, one of the owners kind of took a bunch of money and fled the country and oh. things like that yeah. and left a lot of people. Um, so you read the room early on them? Well, I might have, but I had no choice again. You know, we yeah. were just, we had just had a young, we just had our first baby at the time. And, um, how I got into construction, I guess, or how I got into my own business was not by choice. It's, again, by chance. And I was the salesperson for this company, and uh, I was the one fronting clients and um, saying, you know what, we're going to do a fantastic bathroom for you, Um, Guy and Michelle, you know, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be X amount of dollars, and you can trust me to get this done for you. And... um, they trusted me. They didn't trust the company, you know, and I, mm. I, I felt that responsibility. And uh, there was a period where I knew that this wasn't going to work, and they weren't going to get their what they what they were paying for. And just before it was going to all kind of turn, um, I knew that a couple of the clients I was talking to, maybe three of them, had paid a small deposit, let's say, right, and um, and. Just about a week after, this company sort of shut down. He fled, ran off and did all this stuff. And people would call me, right? And they say, hey, Prince, you know, just checking in. When do you guys think you'll be starting? And I just went, oh, God, what am I supposed to do? What do I do? And so I said, okay, you know, I, 
I called the plumber and who who I knew who was working there. And I said, hey, mate, you know, I've started my own company. I've got all these clients, lots of clients lined up. Do you reckon you want to work for me? And he goes, yeah, of course. <laughs> and then I said, ooh, I don't have a Tyler. And he goes, oh, don't worry. I'll get get my cousin or my friend to come along. And and I was like, well, we also don't have an electrician. And he's like, oh, no, I've got to know this guy. We're sorted. And then I went to the client and, and I just said, didn't have a company registered. I didn't have money to register a company. So, this is totally illegal, by the way. You can cut this out if you want. But uh, it's uh, up to you. Statute of limitations. Yes, passed. exactly. exactly. Um, I literally just gave them my personal bank account details and I said, great, we'll be there on Monday. And I think I had like three or four jobs. And I said to the plumber, mate, uh, I guess you're going to rip this bathroom out and you're going to have to frame it and sheet it and we'll call your mate, the Tyler, and he can waterproof it and the Sparky can put that in and we're halfway there. And we just used all the old paperwork and so, I, you know, we might have got the first one through and we went, oh, okay. And then they were really happy and and then the second person was really, really happy and they went, oh, wow. And I was like, this is more positive reviews than I heard when I was working for the actual company. And, yeah, and then I just went, okay, well, I guess we can formalize this. And uh, we did. We it just, I just registered a company online and did all those things. had no idea what I was doing. And uh, literally was myself sitting in a bedroom in my house and running this renovation company, which was totally... Renovation <laughs> startup. <laughs> renovation startup. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And how did it get to the size and the success that it is now? I'm, I'm very critical of myself, so I don't know when you said success, I'm like, oof, are you sure about that? Um, but... I initially was always like, okay, well, we need to represent ourselves as big as we can. Like, so uh, I would, I had a company name. I, I was big on marketing. I was, I was had a nice brand. I had some really nice paperwork, and uh, and I thought, oh, you know what? I need some employees, but I can't really afford employees. So then I m- created some new, <laughs> some email addresses of employees, and I went, well, this is great because the interaction between these so-called employees and the clients will create this huge air of credibility and so my accounts manager would email the client and say hey guy just following up on that invoice we sent prince is really like looking to start this job soon uh and that was all me (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome so did you have like the email chain going through as well sometimes where you'd email the other person in something and then... Of course. <laughs> like this guy called John it. Swords who I had... John uh, Swords. John Swords John was Swords. the accounts manager. Yeah. And he was strict. He was very strict. <laughs> <laughs> he was on the ball as well. Right. Like, yeah. uh, he wouldn't. He would always be sending me personal emails and go, Prince, this person hasn't made their invoice. I don't know if we can get this job out the door. Please let them, you know, let them know. Or vice versa. I'd be like, hey, John, what do you think? Do you think we can offer this discount? 
and he might reject it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd forward uh, these on to your yeah. clients. And I'd say, look, I tried. Yeah. <laughs> So how, how many awesome. how many different people were you at that start? At the uh, start? We had oh I should say we gosh that sounds <laughs> like a schizophrenic. No, I love it. <laughs> this is great. Uh, the company was just myself, but in 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 the client size, I think there was about four four you four were, You were four different people, four different emailing yeah. yourself. And, yeah. Okay. So I how many it. other employees uh, apart from those four are there now? So now we don't have those employees anymore. <laughs> 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 you got rid of them. We had yeah. the you consolidated them all into one person. Uh, they just didn't fit with our culture and ethics <laughs> and stuff. Um, it kind of grew naturally. This company, Komoda, uh, has existed since early 2010, 11. Yeah. And um, as I said from the beginnings, it was very sort of, natural in how we, we went about things um we uh, the guys that i have working for me they a lot of them the, so the first plumber that i was speaking about and the tyler they still work for us fantastic wow. still do yeah and so um a lot of the people that work here have been there been here for many many years and i th- i can't put a finger on why they do it. Oh, I've got a feeling. Yeah, I'm yeah, pretty I sure I know why. I think I'm getting a picture as to why they're still It feels like a family just from what you're saying as well. I don't, I, again, I, I hate to use that term. You know, companies use that, oh, we're mm. a family all the time. Oh, I yeah. don't even know how genuine that may sound. Mm. So I'm careful not to use that. Yeah. But I think there's, uh, we have close to 45, 50 people who work on the regular. Yeah. For Komoda, yeah, um, internal staff, regular contract contractors, and then service providers who we work with on a daily basis, basically. Yeah. Um, we've gone from being a bathroom renovation company to a luxury bespoke renovation company, um, and that has happened over the last five years really the, the acceleration of that has happened over the last five years and within the organization we still hold true to some really core values um and i'm you know going to speak on that in in the meeting that we're going to have and it, it, you know our our brand statement is your vision delivered Mm. Right. So Komodo's brand vision is a brand statement is your vision delivered. It was an interesting pick for us when we were doing our branding, uh, which was only about three or four years ago. And uh, I specifically wanted something that wasn't about us, but it was about the other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, quite often we hear brand statements from companies embellishing themselves. Yeah. And I... Um, <clears throat> specifically wanted it to be about your vision and I wanted the reader for that to apply to them so if my team or my trades read it I want that to be a truth statement for them Mm yes as it is a truth statement for our clients yeah as it should be a truth statement for myself 
I love that story. I, I, I could, I, I've, I've heard a bit of that story when we first met, but uh, thank you for sharing. You're welcome. All, all the way back from <laughs> Sri Lanka to now having a successful, and I'm going to say it again, <laughs> successful co- construction company here in Brisbane. Um, we've got a few questions to ask you about leadership, if that's okay. Fire away. So we, we talk about leadership in this podcast and that you're a leader when other people choose to follow you. You're a manager when you've been given authority over other people. What makes somebody the sort of person that you'd be inspired to follow? So what would you say is a character trait that you would like to see in a leader that you would choose to follow? Again, this may sound cliched. The leaders that I have looked up to have put core values of authenticity first. And if you put that out, then it's a choice for people to follow you in that path or not. Mm. I think it's hard when someone is inauthentic, if that's the word. Mm. And then it's really hard for people to judge who it is that they're following because you don't have to... Yeah, that's authenticity, but it it, it can be both ways. Mm. Uh, For me, I choose to be vulnerable Mm. and show vulnerability in front of my team Mm-hmm. Um, and to ask for help and to not appear as a person in charge, but as Simon Sinek says, you know, you have to be, you have to take care of the people in your charge. Mm. Yes. Right? That's the law. That's your job. Yeah. <laughs> So you were talking about in the travel um, part of your career, uh, your travel career, you were talking about um, you were leading but you didn't think you did it well or you didn't really know what you were doing. Were there aspects of what you did back then that you'd still do now? I went into a a leadership uh, culture headlock, I think it was, uh, if I could say that. Um, so it was, it was, it was going in and changing some of the standards that everybody uh, believed was the standard and the norm. Um, a simple thing would be, you know, officers in Sri Lanka, they don't think twice about it, but they would all have water bottles that would be, say, a used alcohol bottle. Okay, and it, it's it's actually funny when you stop and think about why. Um, and so I actually was the first few weeks I was like, why is everyone having a, a you know absolute vodka bottle here or something? And it was it was almost a prestige thing to say, well, guess what? I've had this bottle. Now I'm choosing to use it as my water bottle here. Have a look. And. That was that would be one of my standout things. I gave you one of the one thing that stood out, and I just sat and thought about it and looked at it and I went, "This is bizarre, right?" Because I have clients coming in and they're seeing your black label or whatever yeah. it is that you've you decided to use as your water bottle, and I was like, "Guys, no, this is not 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 happening." And when I explained it, it was actually a, a pushback because. Uh, some of my staff, they were like, but don't you realize this is actually 
something a that status thing. this is a yeah. status thing. We should, we should, you know, all other big companies, they, they, they all have that. And it's just a one quick example of something so small. And I was just completely oblivious to it. And I didn't realize and think through it at that time. I just was irritated by the fact that people had alcohol bottles empty with water in it. Yeah. But still, it wasn't a good look. Mm. And little things like that. But the loyalty and, and, and the camaraderie and the, um, the, the, the effort that people would go to, to achieve a, a, a the goal that you set as a leader or uh, the the that sort of faith in your navigation and, and this implicit faith that they had um, was actually quite astounding. Nobody would say, I'm going to challenge you on that or I'm not going to do that or why should I? None of that. It was so that to me was refreshing at the time. And now I look back at that and go, you know, it's it's a cultural thing. Um, people can easily exploit that as yeah. well. Whereas, uh, you know, I, one of the first things I didn't want wanted to get rid of was people calling you me sir, but because you're the boss or you're the manager, and I was like, please don't call me that because that's uncomfortable. But that was just their way of saying I respect you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you started this whole um, story by talking about a philosophy of stoicism I think you've displayed an incredible amount of stoicism throughout your life if you could leave our listeners um, with one last lesson one last (laughs) life lesson or leadership lesson I know I'm putting you on the spot here but what would that be? You can only Work with what you have in your hand at that time, whatever that time may be. I love that. That is it. Prince, I just want to say a big thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's it's a captivating story, and I think um, people can take a lot out of that just by listening to the way you've approached life, you've approached all of the adversity that you've faced and how you've overcome it. Um, yeah, and you've just not given up. It's that that no matter what roadblocks or things were taken from you, it's just that no, keep going, keep yeah. going. And I have a saying, keep going until you can't. And and that's a classic example of that. You just like no, you get a roadblock here, you turn here, you do. Yeah. And yeah. I, I said this to someone once. who said, "How bad could things actually be if I had the op- like the the absolute chance of being killed and that didn't happen? How much?" Whatever the circumstance that you can throw at me, would that possibly be worse than that? Mm. And if that is a no, then I'm okay with that. Mm. Well, I think the Stoics would be very proud <laughs> to have you as part of their community. That's right, yeah. Prince, thank uh, you so thank much. Thank you guys so much. This was such a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, I've still got goosebumps at me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Prince. And thank uh, so... Can you just leave us a bit of information about Komoda, how do people get in touch with you yeah. and find um, Komoda? Komoda uh, is servicing um, the greater Brisbane area. Um, as I said, we do bespoke renovations and we also do medical centres and allied health practices. Um, and you can find us at komoda.com.au or on our Instagram, 
Renovations. And that's C O M O D A dot com. That's right. All right. Prince, thank you again. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Cheers. So, Michelle, where can they find us? CaptainandtheClown.com. Where you'll find links to our websites for keynote speaking and corporate training. Yes, that's CaptainandtheClown.com. <laughs> well, that was fun. That was fun. <laughs> You're the, such a clown. The clown. Captain. <laughs> Lady Captain. Lady. <laughs> and who's going to listen to this? Maybe our mums. Thanks, mum. Thanks, mum.